This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, listen to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from the show from Tuesday, January the 31st, the last day of January. Uh, coming up, we'll hear from Scott Armstrong. He's the founder of Mental. Uh, why? McKinsey report out suggesting that uh, we've got a problem with burnout here in the region. And the average uh, here in the GCC higher than the global average, uh, especially in light of the fact that Jacinda Ardern, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, recently stepped down because she had nothing left in the tank. Uh, and referencing burnout within her own position. Uh, let's put more focus on to burnout in the workplace and what can be done about it. Plus, we looked at all things SAF, uh, that's sustainable aviation fuel. Why? Because Emirates, uh, they've conducted their first SAF flight, just a one-hour flight a couple of days ago, uh, in association with GE Aviation and other partners. This is part of a fact-finding mission, if you like, to see just how sustainable uh, the aviation fuel can be and when we're more likely to see it used across the fleet. We spoke to Zaina uh, Chaktura from GE and Adel Alreda from Emirates. Hank Potts joined us live in studio as well. Hank's a well-known market strategist for Barclays Private Bank. He's here in the region to meet his clients, popped in to have an in-depth conversation with Richard uh, over a course of the course of half an hour. Uh, plus, Shruti was back after a short trip over to India, uh, which was rather timely for us because a lot of stories coming out of India, none more so than the investments into and reports on the, the Adani Group. So we got Shruti's thoughts on that and other India stories. <laughs> All right, then let's get some more detail on that top story now. $400 million investment in the Adani business empire by IHC, the Abu Dhabi-based company. Let's get more on Adani now. Producer Shruti Rajendran with us in the studio. Morning, Shruti. Morning. So you just come back from India within the past few hours. You were there for four or five days or so. And the question I'm really keen to know is, what is the public mood? Because Gautam Adani has very much made this about nationalism. And Indian politics, he says, the, the the critical report from Hindenburg, the U.S. research company, is not just an attack on me and my company. It is an attack on India and the integrity of Indian companies and the integrity of the Indian economic story. What's the mood on the ground? I think it's fair to say that the country is divided over this. There are some, of course, who think that this is an Indian issue and India should unite. Uh, there were certain talks. I, I watched um, a news report in India where someone said that anyone who earns 50,000 rupees or more should invest in the stock market to prevent Adani Group from going bust because they think it's an Indian responsibility to help the Adani Group. But on the other side, there are also people who are saying, since when are big conglomerates India? Since when is Adani Group India? Is it the government? No. Um, And they don't see how it's their responsibility to help a company rather than India. And they're saying the the argument was, in that case, should we also have to help Vijay Malia, who had similar you know, allegations against him and cases against him leaving, leading him to leave the country. So there has been quite some division over this. And the other factor that I mentioned earlier was about the LIC, the Life Insurance Corporation. What they have done is this is one of India's biggest insurers and uh, they take money that people 
pay for insurance and then they invest it and then they give back the high returns. It's uh, the common one that people do use. Everyone from the you know lower middle class to the middle class use this. And because of LIC's investment into the Adani group, there's now a question that whatever comes out of this report's damages will affect the common man in India. Right. So it's not just about a billionaire falling from third to eighth in the, in the billionaires list. It, it, it trickles down throughout the wider economy. Just remind us, who is Gautam Adani and what kind of businesses does he have? Because honestly, five years ago, I'd never heard of him. We'd all heard of the Ambarnies hmm. and we'd heard of the Tata Group. This guy hasn't come from nowhere, but what do we know about him? No, a similar sort of background to the Ambani's in starting out, that means like started in the father's family business, tried tried his luck, did not like it, uh, then moved to India, uh, moved to Mumbai to, uh, from Gujarat, moved to Mumbai to try his hand at his own business and then decided to set up uh, a company with his brother. And now if you look, if you go to India or have been in the last how many of years, five years, as you mentioned, everything from ports to electricity to Wi-Fi to telephones, everything will have an Adani name on it. So it has been a bit of a uh, quick shot to fame, but it's, of course, uh, you know, his close ties to Prime Minister Narendra Modi, which has also helped in his achievements. Because they're both from Gujarat state, aren't they? And of course, Narendra Modi, I, I, I don't want to get into politics or take sides, but w- w- one of the platforms he campaigned on when he became prime minister some time ago was the strong economic growth of Gujarat. And it was, I can do this for India as a whole. And, and everybody wants economic growth, don't they? And, and of course, Gautam Adani has been very close to him for many, many years now. Yes. And to be, whether you like Narendra Modi or not, I have to say that as a chief minister of Gujarat, you could see the progress Gujarat as a state made compared to the many other states in India with the same sort of resources, with the same sort of benefits. And, you know, it did put Gujarat on this world map of, you know, he, he tried to make the Make in India brand. There was also the Make in Gujarat where he encouraged companies in Gujarat to transform themselves, to become the industrial hub. And you can see the effects because my mother has an office in Mumbai. And at the peak of when Narendra Modi was the chief minister, she opened an office in Gujarat because that's where most of the inquiries came for import and export. Uh, looking at Narendra Modi's Twitter feed, and he is very vocal on Twitter. He has nearly 100 million followers. Um, he's not saying an awful lot about this at the moment, is he? He's not making it a national issue at the moment. Uh, we'll be watching that one very closely. OK, that's Narendra Modi. Fine. Happy days. And Gautam Adani. But other big stories happening in India at the moment. One I loved was Narendra Modi's political opponent, opponent Rahul Gandhi, who he defeated in the most recent election, uh, going for a walk. Yes. This was no ordinary walk. He walked from bottom to top of India, almost 4,000 kilometres. Yes, the southernmost tip, that's Kanyakumari, and he walked from there all the way to Kashmir. And uh, he's, he's um, shall I just say, if this was a PR stunt, I would say he's done a good job. <laughs> it clearly was a PR stunt, yes. but that's fine. But I mean, he did it and it took him weeks, didn't it? Yes. This was him speaking just a couple of days ago, right up in the north in Kashmir. And just picture the scene. So it's a political rally, fine, um, but it's, it's a blizzard because it's, it's winter and he's up in the north and he's wearing a big coat, he's got his big bushy beard and he's got a beanie hat on, not the slick suited and booted Rahul Gandhi that we know. And this was him talking in Hindi about the fact that, and, and it was very honest and personal, wasn't it, a, a approach that he took, talking about the fact that many members of his family have been assassinated and talking about that loss. <laughs> जिसने हिंसा नहीं देखी है उसे यह बात समझ नहीं आएगी 
What was he saying? He's saying that people who haven't experienced violence will not understand. And this is, of course, in response to being in Kashmir. Um, as we know, there are a lot of issues over there um, without getting into politics. There's just Kashmir is a you know huge a uh, point of conversation that comes up in India and uh, he was warned by his security team not to walk from Jammu to Kashmir the last 3 days but um they said it might be better if he drove there because of security concerns and that is in response to uh that when he was advised by his security team because he obviously you know famously with his father was killed by a suicide bomber his uh, grandmother was killed by her own security personnel so there he is making reference to the fact that he has experienced violence and he knows what it feels like and he is telling the public that he wants this kind of violence to stop that soldiers should not be coming back dead because of skirmishes or problems that happen in kashmir uh, finally we've got the the budget in india happening Tomorrow, what day are we? Tuesday. Tomorrow. It's tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah, yes. the, the union budget. We're going to have analysis on this on, on Thursday morning. But the, the, the data don't lie. India is one of the strongest growing economies in the world at the moment. Tom, you've been looking at the IMF um, World Economic Outlook, haven't you? Over the past well, hour and a half. It broke just as we came on air. They've raised their global growth forecast a bit, not much, but a bit, haven't they? Uh, exactly that, yes. Uh, uh, IMF, um, yeah, it was what, point two of one percent or something like that a little bit of a smidgen uh, but the global growth outlook um uh, good or uh, positive uh, because for but there are a lot of buts with this aren't there a uh, little bit of a smidgen of of, of growth uh, but uh, there says that the full recovery is only just starting at the moment but we'll take the little positives at present um across the region uh, despite them also reducing but their outlook on Saudi Arabia as was reporting in the headlines world's fastest growing major economy by some distance at the moment India India IMF forecasting 6.1% growth in 2023 double the global growth rate so there's clearly some good things happening yes Truth? and it's an important one because it's the last one before the general elections next year so it will be an important one all eyes on the finance minister her last one for the current Modi government and then we'll see what happens next year. We will be crossing live to India on Thursday morning for the latest on that. Of course, major trading partner of us here in the UAE. Shruti, did you have a good time? I did, yes. Thank you. That's the most important thing. Thanks for joining <laughs> us this morning. Appreciate it. That is our producer, Shruti Rajendran, returned from Mumbai overnight with the latest on the Adani and other Indian stories. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Saf! What that? Sustainable aviation fuel. Get used to it because we're going to hear a lot about it in the coming months and years. Um, Emirates Airline uh, grabbing the bull by the horn here and have successfully completed a trial flight powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Our producer, Mohammed Suleiman, was on the tarmac uh, when the flight took off and he spoke to the main players involved in the achievement yesterday. First up, let's hear from Zina Chaktura, the Senior Customer Service Manager for GE Aviation. So they're the guys who make engines for the likes of Emirates. She explained to Mo very simply what SAF or Sustainable Aviation Fuel is and why it's different from normal jet fuel. So SAF stands for Sustainable Aviation Fuels and SAF is made a different way. SAF is made from a renewable feedstock such as oils, greases, fats, and sugars. So it's not petroleum-based, which is the opposite of, you know, jet A fuel is made from petroleum-based. Uh, Great. Win-win. So I suppose the big question is, 
Why is it not being used by the aviation industry as a whole right now? SAF supply is very small, right? It's about 1%, if not even less than current global jet fuel demand. Uh, so we're a long way from there, but I, I hope that through demonstrations like these and events like these, we raise awareness about SAF and we get you know, the whole industry and governments to come together and incentivize uh, companies to produce more SAF so that we can achieve our net zero goals by 2050. So Mohammed also took the opportunity to catch up with Adelel Reda, who is the Chief Operating Officer, the COO of Emirates Airline. He began by asking Adel what needs to be done to make the use of SAF more common. The availability of the fuel within the airport, as you know, not many companies and countries are managing this fuel. And today's flight, we have imported the fuel from Finland and United States. Uh, you can imagine the logistical difficulties we and uh, our partner Enoch have gone through to make such uh, quantity available in here and that's for one flight. Uh, so the key element is, is that to have uh, produce it lo locally and then at the same time uh, to tap that with balances from uh, various uh, countries. Uh, so the more it will become available, uh, it will encourage many uh, airlines to use it. Uh, but in the same time, the increase in uh, volume hopefully will reduce the cost of production uh, as we see today. Today the cost is, is, is high, uh, but then we should not look at that as a stopper. Uh, we should find means to overcome that and technology no doubt is going to play a big role in uh, producing it at a much more uh, cost-effective manner than today uh, method. Here's pricking up there about cost-effectiveness. Adel uh, also went on to explain what impact SAF has on the cost of operating a flight and if that cost is then going to be passed on to the passengers. It is uh, more than uh, double, I think, it, uh, at the, today the cost of it, uh, which is uh, becomes uneconomical. Uh, I don't think that will be sustainable, uh, and I don't think that will be the, the norm. Uh, no doubt about it, this cost will come down. Uh, we want today, we were, we're focusing today on the technical aspect. Uh, we are focusing on the ability of the aircraft and its performance, its engine, to deal with such uh, a uh, fuel. Uh, the next element will be, uh, we'll try to address the costing and the availability of it. All this, I think it will go down once the, avail the, the, the fuel become available in quantity. So availability an issue, cost an issue at the moment, uh, and as uh, and obviously the passing on of that cost and who's going to pay for it, uh, something that uh, the airlines themselves need to get around. Finally, then, Mohammed asked him about how 2023 has started for Emirates, what we are on the final day of the first month, uh, dry January, coming to an end, uh, and his outlook for the rest of the year. So let's get an update on how it's been for Emirates in the first four weeks of 2023. Uh, so far it's been a great year. Uh, I think the demand have uh, gone above our uh, expectation. It's been uh, a good year for the airline industry. It's not only uh, Emirates. Uh, the demand continues to grow and uh, will continue to grow in the next uh, months to come. Uh, all that backlog of uh, flying we are uh, trying to uh, deal with it. Uh, we opened uh, to most of the destination where we'll be operating 
uh, at 90% of our uh, capacity pre-pandemic. And the uh, destination, there will be a few more destinations to add and a frequency to put us at 100% uh, pre-COVID. So it's been a great year. Uh, that was our producer, Mohamed Suleiman, speaking to Adil Al-Reda, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Emirates Airlines. Um, uh, that on the occasion of uh, Emirates successfully completing short trial flight powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuel, the fuel of the future. Uh, two points on that. First of all, I'm looking at S&P Platts, the energy experts. They say one of the game changers could be the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act which essentially ramped up subsidies for renewable or sustainable fuels, including for SAF. And so they say that while on the open market, SAF is at least double normal jet fuel kerosene, if you factor in some of the rebates that you get through this act, Mm. it's really, it's not that big. So, for example, they say US West Coast SAF, and they're S&P Platt, so they know, is $8.3 a gallon, mm. I think about it in terms of filling up your car, whereas your normal jet fuel is $7.8 a gallon. Mm. Now, that's not a massive difference, is it? You're mm. talking 50 cents on eight bucks. So it's a five, five, 7% difference. Uh, that is with government subsidies, so it yeah, doesn't mean it's sustainable going forward, but it could be a, or it is a catalyst for more companies coming into the production of this. And then you get the economies of scale kick in. That's why governments subsidize these things in the short term, to get economies of scale kicking in. The other point I was going to make, or question to ask, hearing from Adil there, speaking to producer Mohammed, talking about you know people, revenge tourism, revenge flying. Have you still got flights from 2019 that you haven't taken? Yeah. Didn't you have one to Madrid or something? Yeah. Taken it? So I've I got, have I've to got take one. it. I double-checked it yesterday. I've got to take it by the 21st of this month. Um, <laughs> I concluded yesterday. 20, January that, or February? Sorry, February. Um, uh, and I concluded. And I was looking at maybe going to watch Spurs against West Ham or something like that. Um, but I'm just going to have to do the re- request a refund because I ain't getting away in February. All right. Okay. Oh, so you could change the flight? Yeah, it's there. Spurs it's... and West Ham aren't playing in Madrid. No, they're not. No, no, you can change it to, to, to anywhere in Europe, but not I, happening. I've got one to Sri Lanka with your brother to watch a cricket match. That must have expired by now. Morning, Hamish. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's talk markets. Let's talk economics now. Hank Potts is market strategist with Barclays Private Bank, based in London, regular visitor to Dubai. And thank you, Hank, because you always make time for us on Dubai Eye. Ahlan Wasatlan, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. We've got Hank with us until nine o'clock this morning, so a good 20 minutes. Any comments or questions about where you're investing your money this year, ping them to us, 4001. Send us a WhatsApp, 04871 But I'm going to kick off. We've got two big economic stories today, the IMF report and the meeting of the Fed later on today. I'm going to start with the Fed and what we expect. This is Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, speaking recently his views on inflation. We see now, as we've been expecting really for a year and a half, that supply conditions would get better and ultimately supply chains get fixed and and demand settles down a little bit and maybe goes back to services a little bit and we start to see goods inflation coming down. We're now starting to see that uh, in this report and the last one. So even Jay Powell admits that inflation is coming back under control to an extent. What are you expecting this week? 
Yeah, listen, I think they are focusing on inflation. Inflation has been moderating in the United States. If you go back to the December report, CPI fell one-tenth of one percent month on month. Doesn't sound like much. Remember, that's the first decline that we've seen in two and a half years. Should remember the annual rate is still at six and a half percent. That's still elevated. It's still more than three times the official target level, but has been decelerating for six consecutive months, now back to its lowest level since October 2021. The good news around inflation is that goods inflation has been significantly weakening on the back of elevated inventory levels, an increase in terms of capacity, a relaxation in some of those restrictions. I think when you look at other factors, well, the reality is tighter monetary policy inevitably result in terms of a moderation in terms of demand labor markets we think will come into better balance remember the federal reserve were incredibly aggressive in terms of hiking interest rates during the course of last year seven consecutive increases to the tune of 425 basis points but we do think we're coming towards the end of that hiking cycle in the united states we think it will finish with a string of 25 basis point increases including a quarter of one percent tomorrow followed by a similar raise coming through in the March and in the May meetings. We've got the terminal rate for Fed funds at 5 to 5.25%. There are those who think the Fed should pause now, in fact should have paused last year, and a lot of them are Democratic politicians in the United States. Let me read this quote to you from Senator John Hickenlooper, who has written to Jay Powell and the Fed this week saying, you have to pause, and he said the following... Interest rate hikes are the Fed's bluntest tool, and officials have already wielded that hammer repeatedly. He says raising rates now, when prices may come down, would be foolish and damaging to American consumers and small businesses. And he's not the only one saying that. What do you make of that argument? Well, the reality is inflation is going to be coming down. We've got US CPI averaging 2.4% in the fourth quarter of this year. And I think it's going to be a bit of a tough time for the US economy. We still think it's going to be a subdued performance on the back of lower levels of household consumption growth, the weakness that we've already seen playing out in terms of the housing market, and of course, lower levels of investment. So those tightening of financial conditions are having an impact. But the reality is I think the Federal Reserve wants to be sure that they've tamed the beast of inflation. They don't want to go too early. They don't want to make a misstep. But I think as we look further out during the course of this year, as the economy really starts to slow down, as we get confirmation that inflation has indeed moderated and labour markets cool, remember they've been watching the labour markets very carefully indeed, then that will allow them to pivot towards an, an easing stance. So we think there's a potential for cuts at the end of this year. In fact, we've got 25 basis point cuts penciled in for November and December. So I think it will eventually start to come through, but it's probably too early to suggest that's going to be the case at the moment. Your country, the UK, European Union, also been raising rates. But that's in stark contrast to the approach we've seen in Asia. China and Japan, two of the world's three or four biggest economies, have kept rates rock bottom throughout this. They're more worried about growth than inflation. I am definitely team China and Japan on this one. I think, I think they've got this one spot on. Well, they're in a very different position, we should remember that. We haven't seen the same level of price pressures coming through, certainly in Japan for many years, but also in terms of China. So it's really been about promoting growth coming through from that. If you look at the UK, inflation expectations still remain very high. We think UK CPI will average 7.3% during the course of this year. In Europe, we think inflation will average 5%. The good news around Eurozone inflation 
inflation is that we're starting to see the benefits of government intervention in terms of energy markets, lower electricity and gas prices coming through. But wage inflation is a big concern in the eurozone. You've got increases in minimum wages coming through. We know the powerful unions are demanding higher pay for their members. And that is going to have an impact in terms of inflation expectations. And that's keeping some of the pressure up on the Bank of England and the European Central Bank. So we think we'll see 50 basis points coming through from the Bank of England on Thursday and the similar move from the European Central Bank. Okay, that's one big economic story this week, the Fed and interest rates. Within the past two hours, we've had the latest World Economic Outlook from the IMF being released. It's a, it's an interim outlook, so it's only an 11-page report, not the kind of 400-page baby Thank goodness, thank goodness. Exactly. Sorry, I could skim through that one. Very quickly, this is the chief economist of the IMF speaking about an hour and a half ago. Growth will remain weak by historical standards as the fight against inflation and Russia's war in Ukraine weigh on activity. Despite these headwinds, the outlook is less gloomy than in our October forecast and could represent a turning point with growth bottoming out and inflation declining. Economic growth proved surprisingly resilient in the third quarter of last year with strong labor market, robust private demand, and better than expected adaptation to the energy crisis in Europe. Pierre-Olivier Gurinchas, chief economist of the IMF. I'm sure you've had a, you haven't had time to read it in detail, but you'll have had a little look at it. What do you make, essentially, of them raising their forecast for growth this year? Well, I think it's a mixture. The reality is, and, and we heard that it's still a gloomy outlook. There's no getting away from that. It's going to be a challenging year, 2023. You've got heightened geopolitical tensions. You've got the ongoing impact of elevated levels of inflation on consumption. You've got the tightening of financial conditions. You've got limited fiscal headroom. On the positive side, though, we should remember labour markets still remain very robust. Household, corporate, financial balance sheets still look very healthy. Consumers still have plenty of excess savings built up during the course of the pandemic which is helping to cushion demand the service sector has room to recover as well and we have become more optimistic around china of course given the reopening that has been taking place there our view is listen i think given that we're going to see a recession in the uk in Europe and to a lesser extent in the United States. It's very difficult to see how advanced economies are really going to generate meaningful growth during the course of this year. At a global level, we'd agree that growth will still remain positive, albeit a very weak 2.2%, helped by that recovery that we see in China. Robust growth coming through from India. I think India will be the fastest growing major economy, growth of 5.2% during the course of this year. We should put all that in some sort of context because the reality is Growth at 2.2% would represent the third weakest outturn for the global economy in the past 30 years outside of the contractions that we saw in 2009 and 2020. Hank Potts is market strategist at Barclays Private Bank. He's based in London. He's here in Dubai. Appreciate your time. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's just go back to that uh, McKinsey report that we uh, were speaking about a few moments ago. Um, the latest findings from McKinsey, one in three GCC residents saying that they have experienced symptoms of burnout compared with one in four globally. Two-thirds of GCC residents experiencing symptoms of poor mental health and well-being. Uh, nearly as many experiencing physical health challenges, uh, according to this latest research by the McKinsey 
Health Institute, the MHI. And let's get some more on that uh, with the uh, mental health advocate, Scott Armstrong, also the founder of Mental, joining us here in studios. Morning to you, Scott. Morning, Tom. Nice to see you as always. Um, could employers do more? Uh, employees could do an absolute lot more. Um, and if they do so, the bottom line of all of this is they'll make more money, mm. which is something we've been talking to the business world a lot about, which is embrace this and it's actually good for your bottom line. I mean, in terms of how concerning are those numbers? Are that a concern, but be surprised. You surprised that GCC has higher rates than global? I'm not, but that's because I've been tracking different pieces of research over the last year. Um, there was very recently the Cigna 360 Wellbeing Survey, which captured 98% burnout in here in the UEE. We've had recently the Booper Executive Survey, which they cite something called the Boss Loss, which is uh, 94% of bosses in the C-suite saying they're also suffering burnout, 20% of them acute burnout, more than half of the bosses looking to move on to uh, another role, which is also cited um, in this research as well, the McKinsey research, which shows you that in this part of the world, um, bosses twice as likely, or no, sorry, employees twice as likely to be looking for a new role to try and seek that better work-life balance. So for me, not surprising. Um, is it concerning? Well, yes, because the amount of money that business is losing is is staggering. Um, I mean, the World Health Organization's got this at five trillion, up to six trillion by 2030. Uh, if you do the maths, it's nearly ten million dollars a minute is going up in smoke. 2019, we had a report by the Department of Health that pegged the cost of mental health to business here in the UEE at around five billion, just under five billion, 4.75 billion, I think it was. Which again, doing the maths, you, you, you're looking at half a million dollars going every hour. So, uh, if I'm, you know, the chief financial officer, and this is one of sometimes I say, you know, all right, maybe this the, the CEO doesn't quite get this yet, but if I'm the CFO and I'm looking to save money, I'm looking to kind of stem this flow. I should be looking at this really seriously. And the thing about this report as well is it's. Kinsey, mm. yeah. I mean, this is a serious, you yeah. know, uh, in, uh, who are focused on the advice they give to the corporate world. You know, they're not some ultra woke, bleeding heart liberals. This is a serious management institute that's telling the world, the corporate world, you've got to wake up. I mean, there's eight action points in their report. They're saying this needs to happen. So, what can be done about it? Is it just the fact that we are living in the dark ages still when it comes to employees' mental health. Are employers blinkered to it? I think they are. And I think here it's been a it's been easier for a longer time mm. because there's less legislation to protect employees. I think the government here is doing a, a cracking job in refreshing all of its laws and they're really taking it seriously later on today i'm up at the arab health survey oh sorry arab health forum we've got a round table with the department of health in abu dhabi who've got an, a new mental health strategy dr nahida who's chair of their mental health task force will be joining us we've got dr sarah dalal from the dubai health authority the government's taking this seriously we've gone from 10-year golden visas to five-year golden uh, five-year green visas which means that people can now have a bit more stability and, and, and are not as tied to employers as they once were so i think it's been easier for bosses to ignore this for a while but you know you just have to look at the world of work the whole definition of CEO has gone from chief 
executive officer to chief empathy officer. Mm. And even McKinsey last year, and this was last year, um, did a report, what, what they called the alphas, the alpha qualities for leaders around the world. Very masculine terms. But if you looked at what those alphas were, every single one of them was linked to emotional intelligence. Mm. So that need for leaders to inspire um, their teams rather than lead by fear is just a growing unstoppable momentum, I have to say. So good to know that we're seeing more organisations embrace this. Uh, and from that, great to see that from an employer's point of view. But from an employee's point of view, are, are more of us feeling empowered now to stand up, recognise the symptoms of burnout and say enough's enough? Well, that's one of the missions of Mentor, which is to tackle that stigma mm. and get everybody to ask the questions. And I'm not saying that I've got any of the answers. I'm just asking a lot of the questions. Um, I mean, I think this research will show you that actually, no, not enough of us are. Yeah. I mean, 66% if you if you term that in terms of the workforce across those four GCC countries they looked at, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait, uh, that's close to 18 million people. If the if the ratio holds true, you know there are more people suffering than not. You know it's 66 percent, um, and it's it's funny because we talk about one in three. Uh, that's also the same when it turns to people suffering from mental health from the World Health Organization. You know, the global average is one of four. Here in the UEE, there's been plenty of studies uh, done that says it's one in three. You know, there's three of us in the room. Which of us is it? Has it been or will it be? Mm. I mean, I can answer that question. It's been me and I've I've got a lived experience with it, which I'm very happy to talk about. But... Um, it is a private pandemic. Mm. There are so many people suffering in silence. And again, this is costing business because we have absenteeism, but then we have presenteeism. And the myth is that presenteeism costs less than absenteeism. And it's not true. Mm. Um, if someone's absent, you can put you know systems in place. Work colleagues can shoulder the burden. But presenteeism, when people are not engaged and sat at their desk and suffering, that's costing you in terms of productivity as well. So it, it, looking forward, if you want to be a sustainable business yeah. 10, 15, 20 years down the line, um, this is just something that you have to grasp now. At a time on this occasion, Scott, but if, if, if listeners out there have been prompted to ask for help or find out more about uh, the conversation we've just been having, what's your advice to them? Uh, talk to anybody. You are not alone. Um, it often feels like you're alone, but literally reach out. Obviously, we're here, mental.space, M-E-N-T-L.space. Um, we're as a starting point for the conversation, but there's more resources out there than you would think sure. start asking the questions start having the conversations good on you scott really appreciate your time this morning thanks Thank so much you for, you for popping in as well scott armstrong joining us live here in studio scott's the founder of mental you've been listening to a dubai i 103.8 podcast to enjoy lots more from dubai i in the united arab emirates just go to dubai i 1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts